Thank you. A warm welcome uh, to everybody. It is a great pleasure to be uh, hosting this lecture today with a distinguished uh, guest speaker, and I think on a very important topic, important not only for this country but also for, for Europe at large. I will forget, so before I forget, let me tell you that uh, uh, you can follow this event on Twitter at the hashtag LSE Brexit Vote, one word. Uh, the lecture is organized by the European Institute here at the LSE, and I'm glad to, to say that this is a special year for the European Institute, celebrating its 25th uh, uh, anniversary. It was set up originally in 1991 uh, as an institute for research on, on Europe at the LSE, uh, and uh, over these 25 years, the European Institute has grown to become what we think is one of the, the key places globally for research on Europe, but also for the teaching uh, of European uh, matters. And this has been recognized in various uh, fora, including the national university assessments a couple of times in recent uh, years in the UK. Uh, so we think this is the natural place for, uh, at least in LSE, to, uh, for the study uh, of Europe. And in, in the European Institute in 2009, we established uh, what is known as LEX, L-E-Q-S, the LSE Europe in Question discussion paper series, with a view of creating a, a virtual hub of European research at, uh, and across the LSE, and also with contributions from uh, academics in LSE and also uh, visiting uh, LSE or coming here as invited speakers. Since uh, in the last seven years, since 2009, Lex has published over 100 papers with contributions across LSE, external contributions, but uh, importantly for us, not only from the European Institute, also more widely the Department of uh, Law, Government, Social Policy, Management, uh, Geography and Environment, and others. Um, and we're proud of some of our metrics. We are on the Google Scholar Hates Index and things like that, but I will not tire you with this. Perhaps more importantly, Lex uh, has done other activities, including this annual lecture uh, series uh, that we run, obviously, every year, but also things to promote academic research on, uh, on Europe. We have run two uh, doctoral paper competitions in 2010-2014, so 2018 will be our third one, uh, with um, uh, uh, an award offered to the best paper written by LSE PhD uh, scholar on a matter of uh, Europe across uh, different disciplines. So this is the seventh annual lecture of the LEX uh, series. Our first annual lecture actually was, I think, in this uh, room seven years ago with Andrew Moravczyk talking about the EU's democratic uh, uh, deficit. Some colleagues will remember that, I'm sure. Um, <clears throat> The democratic deficit is obviously at the heart of, of, the, of the question of Europe, and our series is about Europe uh, in question, the question of Europe. Seven years later, we're meeting again in the same room, talking about a slightly different question, the question of Britain, the question of Brexit. But I think most people would agree that the question of Britain and Brexit is really very much profoundly linked to the question of Europe. What Europe is very much reflects and affects uh, what, you, what Britain thinks about Europe and about its position uh, in Europe. So it is very appropriate, I think, for LSE's Europe in Question series to organize this lecture on the, th on the theme of Brexit. And importantly, just one day after the 66th uh, anniversary of the Schuman Declaration, which started it all, the, the coal and steel community back in the day, uh, uh, establishing really the principle of ever closer union. And as we move on to the British referendum uh, on the 23rd of, of June, this, uh, really, this idea about the ever-closer union is very much what motivates the question about Britain's membership into the European Union and then, obviously, the question of the uh, referendum. 
Uh, it is also, of course, uh, I have to emphasize, very appropriate to have a speaker like Professor uh, Danny Dorling to speak to us on this topic today. Why? Because this topic goes beyond the politics of Britain, goes beyond the politics, perhaps, of the institutions of the European Union, and it relates very much to how people relate with the European Union, how people are motivated to think about politics, the economic dimensions of the European Union, the social dimensions, uh, and so forth. Danny Dorlick is the Halford McKinder Professor of Geography at the School of Geography and the Environment sorry, at the University of Oxford, and he has previously taught at the Universities of Newcastle, Bristol, Leeds, and Sheffield, and also in New Zealand. He's Honorary Fellow of the Faculty of Public Health at the Royal Colleges of Physicians in the UK, and Senior Associate Member of the Royal Society of Medicine, among other affiliations that I would not list. Dan is really a prolific and very highly acclaimed social geographer who has studied extensively issues of economy, society, politics, demography, geography, both in Britain, mainly Britain, but not only exclusively, also in Europe. In a career spanning just over 20 years, actually, he has managed to author 36 books and over 200 academic uh, papers uh, in very prestigious academic uh, journals and uh, in a very big variety of topics, issues relating to health, income inequalities, social inequalities, education, poverty, social justice, electoral politics, housing, and other things that I will not take the time to, to mention. Among his recent works uh, are the high-profile monographs of inequality in the 1%, a much more global uh, issue in 2014, and also importantly in 2014, together with a colleague and, uh, and very good friend, Dimitris Balas, they produced the Social Atlas of Europe, uh, which maps a, a range of indicators, social, demographic, and economic indicators across Europe, and talking about inequalities of outcomes, inequalities also of opportunities. His most recent work is the book Injustice, Why Social Inequality Still Persists, and I'm hearing he's currently working on uh, another version of the Social Atlas of, of Britain, and another book on geography. However, besides his academic writings and his affiliations, Danny Dowling is also a leading academic innovator, and I want to emphasize that. Much of his work is available freely online through his uh, website, and in that he puts in practice what we all talk about in academia, about open access academic research, which is openly accessible to all users of research, not only academics, not only pol policy makers, but also the wider uh, public. He's been very active in other fields. In 2005, he started the Internet-based World Mapper, which has now about 700 world maps and spreadsheets on international statistics, which users can, can work with and, and analyze. Uh, and he's also extensively engaged in matters of policy and also of advocacy. Uh, over the years, he's been a member of various expert groups. Just recently, uh, some of the few, uh, some uh, few of them, just uh, a member of the London Fairness Commission in 2015, the British Academy Working Group on where we live now, place and policy, uh, the World Economic and Social Survey of the United Nations, and the Scientific Resource Group of, on health, health Equity Analysis of the World Health Organization. Danny Dorlick is, uh, is a really distinguished uh, academic, a prolific writer, a rounded social scientist, and an influential social and political commentator. Like the Lex series uh, that is hosting this uh, lecture, his work encompasses many fields in the social sciences and it's truly interdisciplinary. Uh, who then more, most, more appropriate to talk to us about the economic, social, political, and geographical dimensions of the big pressing issue for Britain today, the them and us, Europe and Britain, should we stay or should we go? So without further ado, please join me in welcoming our speaker, Professor Dan Dorling.
Good evening. Should we stay or should we go? If we stay, there will be trouble. If we leave, I think it will be double. Apologies. Who's old enough to remember the clash the first time round? You are a minority. It's quite, it's quite nice to be talking to an audience uh, that's mainly young uh, for a change. Uh, but it's London. Now, who's not going to get a vote? Who's not allowed to vote because they're not British or who isn't registered? That's quite... Hands up higher, go on. Majority, a lot of... Yeah, huge number of you get no choice. I do wonder if that's legal. Um, who knows that they don't know how they're going to vote? You're all pretty few of you. You know what's coming next, don't you? Uh, so who's going to vote to leave? One, two... Got a few. More, more to leave at the top than the bottom, <laughs> interestingly. Uh, and who uh, knows they're going to vote to remain? Right. You are London. Um, but you may not be Britain. We're going we're to see. I won't do that at the end. I'm not going to see if I've changed any of your minds. Um, what I'm going to do is, is say a number of things, mainly about this country. I'm not going to, I'm going to try not to make economic forecasts, because I'm not an economist. Uh, I'm a geographer. Uh, but also, I think... If I've learned one thing from now getting quite old in academia, you really can't forecast these things and actually say with any certainty what is likely to happen in two or five years' time. Um, we should have learned that from 2008. Hardly anybody forecast what was going to happen in 2008. I like weird maps. Um, this particular map of Europe is showing you where to go if you've had enough of all of this. Uh, this is where to go to get away from it all. It's drawn by Ben Hennig. Uh, it's places that are furthest away from settlements of 50,000 people in Europe uh, with distance measured by how long it takes you to walk there. Um, so that really is, is, is where you go to get away from it. Now then, what should we tell the children? Uh, I have deliberately blurred the image of this young boy because I don't think it's fair. He hasn't chosen to be in the limelight yet, and he may want to have a normal life in future. Um, so let's, we won't say who he is. Um, this, this is the front cover of Private Eye the other week, with Obama telling this young lad, and then your little country left the EU and was never heard of again. Um, now it's possible. It, it's possible because... The last country, or state at least, which was the most powerful state in the world before the United Kingdom, you don't know its name. Um, it was the United Provinces in what is now the Netherlands. Uh, it is actually possible to disappear. And we could imagine the United Kingdom, well, very easily imagine the United Kingdom disappearing as an, ent as an entity. The most obvious way is, is Scotland using this as a reason to have a second referendum, and 5.5% of Scots voting differently to the way they voted in that very close referendum before. Uh, I'm not particularly wed to the UK as a wonderful thing that we must keep going forever, um, but I, th I think that cover is interesting. One thing I found odd about the debate over whether to stay in the EU or not is it's so often discussed in the abstract. 
as if we were any old country in Europe and there is an ideological reason why you might want to be in the European Union or not. And the same kind of arguments could apply to people in Sweden as to people in the Netherlands, as to people in Germany. There are ideological reasons why you might want to be out of Europe or into Europe and you don't have to worry about where you are. But we're not a typical country in Europe. We are a very, very strange country in Europe. If we were more typical, I would be warmer to the idea that we could leave and make things better. But what I'm going to argue is that in many ways we're a very poorly performing country. This has very little to do with the EU and a lot to do with us and a great deal to do with our legacy of having had an empire. It's quite hard to stop being top dog and that's one thing Britain's had to do. From the Suez crisis right through to the Panama Papers, there's a series of embarrassments that have, that have occurred. Uh, and in a way, this referendum, the fact that just 30% of the electorate voted in our weird voting system and got her party into power, and it was forced to make all of us go and vote on the 23rd. This referendum, I think, is another sign of the UK's slow and gradual transformation to becoming a normal little country. Some people really don't like that, and that's what's happening. And they have a fantasy that if we were to leave, this is the majority of the Brexit group, particularly the cabinet ministers, if we were to leave, we could become great again. We could become the richest country on the, on the world again. They sincerely believe this. George Osborne, who of course is for Remain, George Osborne said it less than a year ago. I sat on Newsnight with his private secretary, I've forgotten his name, um, who was arguing that within 15 years we'd have the high, highest GDP per capita if we just followed the long-term economic plan. Um, it, there is that belief. Now, this table of figures is OECD statistics, and they are statistics on inequality, and they're showing that the United Kingdom, of all the countries that comparable statistics uh, are available for, the richest 25 in the world, we are the most unequal. Our richest 10% take 2.5 times average income, 28% of all income. I'm in that 10%. A lot of you will be in that 10%. We don't feel that well off because our 1% are taking half of that. So 9% of us share 14%. 1% take 14%. Nowhere else in Europe do they take 14%. Our 1% take twice as much as the best off 1% in Switzerland. And Switzerland has bankers. And the Swiss bankers are quite good at banking. But somehow manage to do it uh, on salaries that are half London salaries. The poorest tenth in Switzerland live on, in real terms, more than twice as much as our poorest tenth. And you might say, well, Switzerland isn't in the EU. But Switzerland is a very, very different country to us. It's a country where people respect each other more. Um, we are not a country where people respect each other. We're a country which has its own particular world-famous social class system, which is all about disrespect, which is the idea that some people are very special and other people are so worthless that they're only good for making our beds. That is a legacy that, that we still have.
I'm going to show you a series of posters by Wolfgang Tillmans, the first non-English person awarded a Turner Prize because he stuck them up on the web and let anybody use them, and I think, I think they're quite uh, pretty. And his argument was that there's a lack of passion in the Remain campaign. And I think there's a reason for a lack of, of passion in the Remain campaign, and that's because it's hard to be passionate about what we've achieved because compared to other countries in Europe, we've achieved so very little in so many things. Now, not everything. We are a remarkably tolerant country. We don't have a successful far-right uh, party, unlike most of the other large countries of Europe. But that is partly because we had an empire. And even if you're pretty slow and bloody-minded, several decades' worth of people turning up from your empire and mixing with them you know, it's quite hard to stay bigoted given enough time. But we do, have, we do have positive things about us. We are very international. Many, many, many people come here. I don't know how I would do a passionate Remain campaign given what I think about the country uh, that I live in. It's polarised. It's very polarised. This, I could show you many, many things. I spent half of my career measuring social polarisation and whether the north-south divide was widening slightly or getting narrower was new labour helping completely pointless work since 2008 as everybody knows the north-south divide is getting wider and wider you just have to look at house prices or at health or at wages or at unemployment or anything or you can look at voting uh, this is a segregation index of conservative voters across the whole of the UK and conservative voters became less segregated over time. So you could find conservatives everywhere by the 1950s and 60s. Slightly more in some areas, so they won those and others, but pretty evenly spread. And then from 1974 onwards, there was increased polarisation. So the Tories went from Scotland, and they went from the north of England, and they went from Wales. But Labour lost votes in the south, in places like Bracknell, in the whole of Oxfordshire, in Swindon, in most of Bristol, in all of Hampshire. And the country became divided between these two halves. We entered what is now the European Union at a time of our greatest solidarity, when health divides and other divides were at their lowest in the 1970s. After we entered, we gave people a chance to vote. Um, I do wonder why people who got to vote in 1975 are being allowed to have a second vote now. Um, it just, just seems a bit unfair. They had one go. And, and also, you know, you're talking people over 60. They'll still be around, but they're not going to have to deal with the consequences of their vote. Um, I, I would love to see a legal challenge by a 16 or 17-year-old saying, you didn't give me a vote, but you let these people vote twice. Um, I'd love to see a legal challenge by a prisoner saying, how come I wasn't allowed to vote? Um, anyway, we become more and more polarised. The biggest increase in the polarisation of British politics was in the last election between 2010 and 2015. This had nothing to do with Scotland because there were no Tories left in Scotland at this point. But we are a very, very, very strange country. And we're having this referendum because of the promise in the manifesto. This is the place we're choosing whether to be a part of or not. 
I do wonder how many people in the UK could name half of these countries. Um, I do wonder whether we actually think of this as a choice about whether to be part of these countries or whether we think it's really all about the English Channel, you know, and the over there. Uh, the map includes all EU states, but also members of the European Economic Area, the Schengen Area, candidate states, and states that are just on the edge of being candidates because we wanted to squeeze Turkey in. Uh, the colouring... It's a rainbow scale because I'm a child of the 60s. Um, so lots of my maps are rainbow scales. If you remember Tonka Toys, they were done like that. Uh, the dark purples are the original members uh, of the original you know, Coal and Steel Union. And the colours change as you get more recent members in. But that is it. The map looks weird because it's showing you population. So Scandinavia is lovely, exciting, innovative, and unfortunately small uh, by this. We matter because we're a relatively large and growing chunk. We're only growing thanks to the EU. If it wasn't for the EU, we wouldn't have population growth. Normal people celebrate population growth. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that happened to California in the 1960s. Normal people understand that if people are coming to where you are, that's good news. And if they're leaving the city, as they did for 40 years from Glasgow and Liverpool, that's very bad news. But we're not normal. Um, Rupert Murdoch. Um, I, do, I do think it's interesting, Rupert's particular views on this. This is a country that can be in his pocket because it's small enough, but Europe as a whole is too big for one man to control. Um, I could show you lots and lots of maps of the United Kingdom like this, showing you a divide. This is an interesting divide. Uh, each local authority is colored in with a darker shade of orange if the proportion of people of mixed ethnicity is higher. And that little bar chart shows the proportion going up. What I talked about, tolerance and mixing. We're good at mixing. We're better than New York at mixing. Apart from Northern Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, I suspect that map will look very much like the Remain map when we actually get the results by area, which we'll get. Uh, it'll be the parts of England which are white, the parts of England to which immigrants haven't actually arrived, which will be voting to leave because of the immigrants. Uh, the UKIP vote has traditionally been highest in places like Doncaster, where they held their conference, where the biggest immigrant group in Doncaster are German-born. And they're not very German because they're the children of the Army of the Rhine um, who had to come back. It's a strange, strange country. I'm happy to talk. I'll leave it for questions about serious concerns about immigration. Um, I don't get it, I have, I have to say. Um, and it may say more about me and where I come from and who I grew up, up with, um, but I just don't get it. I get racism. I grew up in the 1970s. I can remember the National Front. I know there are nasty people. I don't get a concern about young, highly skilled people coming into the country I live in, having not paid for their education, and they help teaching the schools that my children go to and they help run the health service that I rely on. I find it impossible to become scared of people who come and do that. Um, 
I find it impossible to become scared of the fact that if we actually do decide to build 200,000 homes a year, we can do it because there are enough builders in Europe to come and do the building work. Um, but some people see that as a threat and would much rather we're in a position where we don't build any houses and don't let anybody in to do it. Or the fact we can run the care home that I will be going into if I'm lucky and don't die of a heart attack because people will come and work in that care home from the rest of, of Europe. Here's the kind of graph that you would be used to if we were the United States of America. And it's a graph that has never been drawn in Britain before. It goes from 1841 all the way to 2011, and it shows the birthplace now of up to almost 8 million people and the different countries of birth over time. We're now a rainbow nation of a huge set of places where people who've come in have been born to... At the bottom, it was Ireland. Always too many Irish. That was bad. And then there were too many Jews. Came in in 1905. That was terrible. We complained about the Jews. And then there were the West Indians. They were awful. And then the Muslims. And then, you know... Um, in America, this would be celebrated. In Britain, it's something we moan about. There is an opposite graph to that, which is much harder to draw, and it's almost exactly as steep. And that's all the people born in Britain who've gone to live somewhere else. Um, except they're not young, mainly, and highly skilled and innovative. The people who leave this country to live somewhere else have often, in, man in many cases, usually just stopped working. They've entered retirement. They're going to rely on somebody else's health service. And very conveniently, they leave here and go and live in Malta or Spain or Crete or Portugal, where there's a nice golf course. And we export hundreds of thousands of our elderly every year to get free health care from somebody else's health service. It's hard to draw because you've got to rely on data on pensions still being drawn. But we have a huge exodus of people. And economically, it's a really interesting division. I do, I mean, if you, I can't help but give you some guesses. If we do vote to leave, well, I suspect there'll be a second referendum. But before there's a second referendum, I think some of those people who are outside of the country will begin to think, perhaps I shouldn't stay in Spain um, in case we leave, unless they've got enough money to pay for private health care which most of them don't. I think we'll begin to get an influx of our expats again. It's even possible to imagine a case, because we couldn't take most of them. We can't actually cope with that number of elderly people coming in. It's possible to, to think about British expats becoming scared that we might actually not give them the right to enter. Now, you may think this is ridiculous, but this is what we did in 1965 to people with a British passport. We took away the right to enter that they thought was a right to life. Um, and it's possible. One thing that's incensed me about the campaign, and I know there is a lot which is wrong in Europe. I know the EU is a rich boys club. I know it's undemocratic, although I'm not sure it's quite as undemocratic as our Westminster voting system, even as the commissioners. I know it favours TTIP and business, but I don't think it favours it quite as much as our governments have tended to. What's really annoyed me is the argument 
that we can't fund the NHS as much as we'd like to because we're paying some money into Europe. It's just enumerate, and I'll get on to that. But it's not just in health. Um, it's also in housing that we're abysmal. We have the highest rents and housing costs for the smallest, lowest quality housing in at least the whole of Western Europe. We have the least rights for our tenants. None of this was imposed by Brussels on us. Um, we are not in a good state. Education, and this might explain the enumeracy, this is data from PISA of people's ability at maths when it's gauged around about up to age 24. And you'll see that we are, along with the United States, uh, pretty bad at basic mathematics. It doesn't look quite so bad at age 16 when you take your GCSE because we're quite good at teaching people how to get an A or a C at maths without understanding what they're doing. Um, but if you want, Japan is up there just to have something outside of Europe, but the other countries up in that top cluster, it's all mainland Europe. Um, but we don't learn from Europe. Our politicians fly off to America. Gordon Brown used to go every year to America to learn from the Americans. And look where America is. And it's not just education. America's abysmal on housing. America is particularly abysmal on health. The worst health of all rich nations on earth. I've got to zoom up. Um, we are heading towards being the lowest public spending uh, country in Europe. That thick black line is our public spending as a proportion of GDP. This little increase here that's the naughty not fixing the roof while the sun's shining, extra spending of labour that people complain about. It was very naughty because that was a war, the increase. Once you take out the war, it would have been flat. Other countries within the EU choose to spend far more of their money collectively, like Denmark and France and Sweden and Italy and Norway, and get better health outcomes and better educational outcomes and better housing outcomes. They get more innovation... People produce more scientific papers per head, more patents, more entrepreneurs. We have a myth that we are brilliant entrepreneurs, that we have some kind of flat white economy going on in London with people creating brilliant app companies. It just isn't there when you start to measure it. At the end, you come back to James Dyson for our great innovations. If you want to see a place that's created new kinds of phones, it's Finland. Um, the huge rise is this public spending to avert the banks shutting. Ireland followed our advice. They'll live to regret it for a century, I think. Um, but again, just look at the variation that's possible within the EU. It is not the EU that tells you you can only tax and spend 36% of your GDP. And if we were to leave the EU, where do you think we're going to head on that? What kind of country are we going to be? Is it going to be a case of survival of the fittest? If you can't afford to live in London but you can't get out of London, the gutter's good enough for you, which is the case in Los Angeles. <coughs> Our National Health Service is very efficient. It, it wins international awards constantly. I think it, it came first in the last five international comparisons that I saw. But it also doesn't work very well because we fund it so lowly. And we fund it so little, not because we have to make some payments to the EU, but because we've chosen to fund it so little. 
Um, the Swiss spend twice as much per person on health. Uh, Norway, 81% more. The Netherlands, 59%. Germany, 49%. Denmark, 41%. Even France, 27% higher spending on, on health care. This is King's Fund figures. We could spend more on health if we chose to tax more and we chose to spend less on other things. But, but we are unusual. It has nothing to do with the EU that makes us do this. We also don't have a huge number of people from other countries. We think we do because it's gone up, but it's gone up everywhere. Because all over the world, people are moving further away from where they were born. The biggest immigrant groups in the, in the UK and the biggest rise in immigration in the UK between 2001 and 2011 is the English-born who have settled in Scotland and Wales. And that's just because people have become a little bit more adventurous about where, where they go. This map is dark, dark blue if over a fifth of the population were not born in the country where it's showing. So, of course, yes, the middle of London is dark blue. But look at all the yellow in the rest of England. Right, less than 5% born abroad. Now remember, some of those people will be the children of British service men, in most cases, stationed in Europe, who were hardly joining in very much of European culture when they were out in what was then West Germany. The rate is higher in the middle of Europe because the middle of Europe is more connected to other places. But interestingly, if you think I'm overdoing it about the expats, just have a look. Madrid and the Costas. Loads of immigrants there. Our immigrants. Large numbers. Right. Who enjoy all kinds of rights because they're European citizens. They do get a vote, I think, as long as they were, I think, around in the last 15 years or some complicated thing set up to try to maximise somebody's advantage. Um, we have a very strange idea of democracy. Right. This is... Trends and inequalities over time in the series of selected countries, it's a take of the 1%. Everywhere became more equal, and then you get a rise in inequality, but not, ev not everywhere. The Netherlands hasn't gone up. The UK was the second most equal large country in Europe in the 1970s to Sweden. Only Sweden had smaller income gap gaps than those in the 1970s. I'll, again, I'll leave it for questions. I'm willing to defend the 1970s above any other decade. Uh, it's my favourite decade. I think it's been much maligned. Um, but from the 1970s onwards, if you can see our dashed line, we just jump over country after country after country as we try to pretend we're like America. And that creates a huge amount of our woes. Why are our state schools so lowly funded per head, with the funding dropping in six forms at the moment? Could it be because 7% of children don't use them, unlike the rest of Europe, where almost everybody goes to a state school? What's the point of sending your child to a private school if the government go and decently fund the state schools? This is a very, very English well, and Edinburgh thing. Right. Our health is poor. 6,000 children die a year in this country. Only Romania has a worse rate of infant mortality than parts of, of the UK. And we don't even know it. We have one of the lowest life expectancies in Western Europe. This map is showing you the rate of people dying of respiratory disease per 100,000 per year. 
other countries wouldn't put up with this. But we're still a class-ridden society. They're different. They smoke. Yeah, they've managed to get to 65. So what? Death numbers in this country rose last year, well, in England and Wales, by around about 5%. More people died in 2015 and 2014. Was there an outcry? No. In Scotland, they rose by 9%. Somebody said it might be the flu. It almost certainly isn't the flu. But the real question, the real question is why on earth is nobody worried about increasing mortality in the country? Why did all four chief medical officers of the United Kingdom choose not to comment on it in their annual reports? How can you be a chief medical officer and not comment on more people dying? Um, I, I've lived here all my life, but the idea that we are somehow great and only being held back by the, our membership of the EU doesn't fit with how bad we are at so many things, including allowing our grandparents to die earlier than they need to die. Uh, the map here is showing the proportion of people going to university in the year 2010, the latest data we managed to get hold of. This was a map drawn with Ben Hennig and Demetrius Ballas, who was mentioned earlier, and we're working on a new Atlas of Europe. Uh, we got quite annoyed. We timed it for March 2017. We thought that would be the referendum. Um, but clearly David Cameron really hates having his summer upset, so it had to be a bit earlier. There is hardly any dark blue in the United Kingdom because fewer people go to university here. And it wasn't the EU that made us charge £9,000 a year to go to university. That was all by ourselves we did that one. Um, we are good at getting postgraduates in. Uh, this is a proportion of people aged over 25 who are postgraduate, often doing PhDs by that age. And that's one of the things we're good at. Our top export industries are banking, first of all, and then education. So what a brilliant idea to think of leaving a European Union so that our finance companies go to Munich and people have to get special visas to be allowed to come and study at the LSE if they come from any other European country. And we tell the whole of Europe how worried we are about these immigrants. But, oh, please, can you come and pay some fees and do a master's course? Right. These two maps, this nearest one is really interesting to me, and I, I don't get it. I told you that people are moving further and further in general. People are retiring in different countries. They're getting a bit more adventurous. They're going for jobs in other places. doesn't happen at 18. That is the map of how many young people leave a country to go and study somewhere else. And for some reason, our youngsters are not deterred by the thought of £56,000 debts, which is the standard debt you get, or £100,000 if you get a better-paid job. They're going to universities in England, even though they've got the right to go anywhere else in Europe. Apparently, it's too hard to learn Greek for the £56,000 it'll save you if you go to study in Crete. Um, I think, in general, it's partly because we're becoming more European, and so our children are a bit more cotton-walled and a bit less adventurous uh, to go away. But that second map, the map further away from me, shows people coming in. 
shows how much we benefit from getting people who come here and pay to study. This is a map of who's afraid. The latest data is 2008. It's from the Eurobarometer, I think. And the question was, are you afraid of losing your national identity or culture? And the map is showing people who are very much afraid of that. And the highest proportions are in Turkey, uh, and then the United Kingdom, and then Kosovo. Countries on the edge of Europe are most afraid of becoming more European. But we pay so very much to be in Europe. They pay more per head in Sweden, Denmark, the Netherlands and Germany, and they're not worrying about it too much there. And it really isn't very much money. This is euros per resident population uh, that is paid. This is the world drawn by population. We think we're bigger than we are. We are 1% of the world's population, less than that now. We are much less than half a percent of the world's children living here. The world is a different shape to the map that you're used to. This is the image that many of us still have. These are the pink bits of the world. This is the empire that we only lost because we'd entered this union of Europe. And if we were to leave, we could form trading relationships with all these countries again who'd be dying to link up with us, forgetting the fact that they already have signed up to various other groups. But it's understandable. It's our legacy. You know, tears were shed in Hong Kong in 1997. It's terrible to lose your mansion and have to come home. Um, and this bloke's the chancellor of my university. It's, it's difficult to give up an empire. And it's easy to harbour some fantasy that you are a genetically superior race and just unleashed and not controlled anymore, you will become world powerful again. But it's a fantasy. Here's one of our battleships nowadays. It's parked in just outside the city of Mytilene on Lesbos. And what's it doing? It's stopping children like him crossing the sea. That's what we have been reduced to as a country. It is shameful. Uh, I think that little boy is okay. He is in the Moira camp, which became a concentration camp recently to concentrate migrants. And a legal case in Greece has meant that he can't, as far as we know, be taken back to Turkey. That's depressing, but there's good news. And I'm going to end on time. Uh, the good news, you may not know this, but if you remember anything from my lecture, at 8 o'clock tonight... The semi-finals of the Eurovision Song Contest begin. Now, Joe and Jack are representing the United Kingdom. And this can't be coincidence. I, did, I haven't got the technical knowledge to try to play you their song. I, I really ought to do it. But uh, do, you can click on the BBC and see what Joe and Jack are singing about. Um, the chorus is, you're not alone, we're in this together. And I, I will... <laughs> They're from Stoke-on-Trent and Ruthin in Wales, which are UKIP central. It's really, it's really interesting. Uh, I won't tell you the last line of the song, but the key thing, I think, is this, and we'll find out it in not many days' time. Last time, we only got five votes in Eurovision. Now, our friends and neighbours in the rest of Europe have a choice. And I think they're, quiet. they're keeping very quiet. They don't want to affect our vote. If you notice, the Germans haven't said anything, right? They just don't want to say anything. But we get jury votes at this Eurovision. 
I am happy to predict that whatever happens, we'll see more than five votes. I'm hoping we get slightly love-bombed. The question is, will we actually appreciate that if it happens, or will there be complaints that this is terribly unfair and it's completely wrong that people voted for Joe and Jack and their song about staying together in Europe? Thank you very much. Thank you, Danny. That was an uh, extremely interesting and uh, uh, talk with many, many uh, points t- uh, to pick up. Um, I should mention now, because I, I do tend to, to forget that we do have a, a small reception following this uh, um, lecture. So at 8 o'clock, if you don't want to see the, um, <laughs> uh, the semifinals for the Eurovision contest, you can come and join us at the atrium uh, in this building just outside this uh, theatre. I'm afraid, however, we may not have enough spaces for everybody, so it's a, a bit of a first-come, first-served for the reception uh, at 8 o'clock after this uh, lecture. So we, we, uh, we will open it now to the audience to take uh, questions. I will take uh, perhaps a couple of questions at, uh, at a time. But let me, as you collect your thoughts, uh, let me kick off with a kind of a, a question slash comment, and I would like uh, Dan to hear if you can say something a bit more on that. You mentioned in a couple of, of um, uh, points this very much the, the idea of the British Empire and the, the identity as, as, in a way, you know, distinctive nation uh, as a key influential point for, for the... Uh, you know, the decision to stay or, or, or not. And I wonder whether this is... Sort of, I mean, because at some level you would think that there's not so much evidence on that, and much of the debate is about all the ills of the European Union, bureaucracy, democratic deficit, you know, how much we pay, and, and things like that. And, and the idea of the distinctiveness of, the, uh, of Britain as a nation has not featured so much in the public debate. Is, do, you think, do you think this is more of a strategy or... No, no, I, I think, and it's impossible to prove it, I think it's subconscious. Uh, I can remember my granddad telling me about going to the mainland Europe after the war and just how well off we were because the mainland was, was bombed out. I can remember going as a child on a school trip when I was 15 and getting 10 francs to the pound and feeling I was really rich and then going back a f- couple of decades later and getting free. Um, and you go now and... We've got a sense that we've become relatively poorer. The pound was devalued by 20% in 2008. And the reason we were so rich when my granddad first went was not because we had the most brilliant industry and the most wonderful shipyards and the most innovative people. It's because we had a captive market of half the planet. But we never told ourselves that. And when countries got their freedom with a lag... India stopped buying our textiles, and country after country in Africa decided it didn't want to buy some overpriced piece of kit that we were trying to sell it. And we blame that on our membership of of Europe and the British disease and all these things. But in fact, the, the reason why life was relatively so much better in the past was we got a tribute from an empire. And that makes us different from almost every country in Europe. Thanks. Okay, uh, uh, we can 
open to, to your questions. Uh, please raise your hand if you want to ask a question. And uh, when you ask a question, keep it quite short, please, and identify yourself first. So can we take a question? Hi, Danny. Uh, thank you for that lecture. Um, firstly, like you're speaking a lot of truth, so I really appreciate that. So thank you for that lecture. Um, secondly, uh, I want to pick up on what you talked about regarding TTIP. Obviously, that's been exposed, as we all knew, mm. as being highly corrupt and um, being uh, a method with which to serve U.S. hegemony. Uh, can you speak a little bit more about, you know, what our membership of the EU would mean to something like TTIP, whether we stay or whether we go? Yeah. Um, well, quickly on that one, uh, our government was very in favour of TTIP. In fact, our government is in favour of many things to happen within Europe, which would be bad for Europe. Uh, we only know that we have a huge number of bankers paid over a million euros a year because of European legislation that we tried to stop. Um, I think TTIP, there are interesting gains that are being won, and TTIP may well not happen. One concern, I have friends who want us to leave because they'd like us to stop holding the mainland back. If we were to go and we are not in Brussels, just imagine what Brussels could do without a country constantly saying, don't do that good thing, don't do that good thing. Um, but I would hope uh, that people in Europe are smart and clever enough. You've got to remember, we've never had so many people go to university across the whole of the continent. We are now a very, very well-educated continent. If we cannot work out that TTIP is a bad deal together, whether with the UK included or not, that's very bad news. TTIP is the end legacy of the 1970s, 80s fantasy of a free market makes everybody better. And the people who first believed that as teenagers, unfortunately at my age now, and they will not stop believing it till after they're dead. But younger generations know that free markets do not make everybody better. In fact, most people lose out in a free market. Uh, yeah, we'll take. A, can we take a question here at the very front of the talk? Yeah, it's a long way for the microphone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we take two. Yeah, yeah, we do. Too. Yeah. Hi. Um, yeah. Thank you for the lecture. It was really good. Um, I have an exam on Thursday, and one of the questions on... <laughs> <I'm sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, get, you get to know the question? <laughs> it's, um, like, it's like that grammar one that's just been leaked. <laughs> um, like when I was doing my revision, one of the questions were about why we're so sensitive about handing over power to Europe. And I just didn't understand why we're terrified of that, but we're okay with if we leave, we'll just be kind of like the US's passenger on whatever yeah. they're doing in the world. Like, I just feel, I don't get why we're okay with losing sovereignty to the US or like globalization and the free market, but we're so anti-Brussels. Yeah. Okay, uh, uh, do the other one, yeah. yeah. Yeah, let's take another question, just the, the gentleman behind you. Yeah, I'm trying to be polite, but essentially you're lying over the issue of um, saying why we want to uh, why a lot of people want to leave the EU. Um, I've lived in Australia, I've lived in the UK. Um, the University of Oxford, as far as I'm aware, doesn't let in anybody who wants to come to the University of Oxford. 
What is being proposed is essentially that we have a migration policy which basically says we decide on the basis of qualifications and other criteria. It's nothing about racism, it's on the basis of qualifications. And I just wish, in terms of the argument, you would not perpetrate falsehoods like that. I think a lot of what you said, and some of your books are very interesting, but this has been extremely biased, very unfair, and there's been a lot of rhetoric, and sad to say, not too many facts. So I'm rather saddened by what I've heard. Okay. I'll do you, do you first. The, <laughs> the sensitivity... Well, the group who want to leave are wide. I've got friends in the trade union movement who, want, who are part of the vote to leave because they believe that we can get socialism in, in one country. I just don't think it's this country. Um, but the main argument to leave is in the Conservative Party, and particularly the seven cabinet ministers who are the Brexit. Um, and I think they're so sensitive about Brussels having power over us because they think they're cleverer than other people, and they're being held back by these somewhat retarded Europeans who are not letting them do things like get rid of your holiday entitlements or ensure you have maternity pay or make sure that our beaches are clean when we ought to let the market decide if we need them to be clean or not. You know, because the market would work. People just wouldn't go... I'm answering her question first. I will get to yours, don't worry. Um, I think there's a group who genuinely, genuinely believe that they were born to rule and are very able, and if only they could be allowed to be in charge, everything would be fine and sorted out. What's interesting are the Conservatives who've decided, even though they come from very similar backgrounds, that that would be a bad idea, including the Prime Minister and, and the Chancellor. Your question. I wish I'd put more stats up on my slides. Uh, I do put a lot. I think to lie, you have to believe something but deliberately not say it. And I honestly do believe what I've been saying. So I don't think I'm lying if I believe what I'm saying. Although you are right, I didn't emphasize how much immigration is, is actually central to the Brexit vote. Not to the uh, group who are leading it in the Conservative Party. They like lots of people coming in. That's good for the market. They don't want to stop that. So they may promise immigration to tens of thousands, but in fact it's been net 300,000. But to many people who are going to vote to leave, immigration is their key issue. That was not the question. Are gone? The question was, nobody is advocating no migration. Okay. What we, what most That's not a question. What's your question? <laughs> Why are you misrepresenting like many people, unfortunately, from the sort of the elite who think they can just tell us more lies and with our voting system, etc., keep us all, keep, keep the basically yeah. population down. And the fact of the matter is, is nobody, I don't even think anybody in UKIP um, or maybe even the National Front, uh, which are of course are abhorrent, are in favour of saying no migration, okay? What basically they're talking about is balanced migration. In other words, having an Australian system which yeah. is basically saying, let's look at each individual person and, for example, if we want plumbers, yes, we have plumbers. Okay, yeah. oh, I mean, you come from the University of Oxford. Can you imagine the University of Oxford saying, right, we'll let into the University of Oxford everybody who wants to come in? Because, frankly, if you're not prepared to support that, 
it seems to me you, should, you shouldn't be so hypocritical and sort of saying, well, no, no we're, we're doing the opposite. Uh, almost a third of people in my... I grew up in Oxford as well. Almost a third of people in the city I grew up in were born overseas. And that includes people not at the university. I always start public talks in Oxford by asking people to put up their hand if they're born in Oxfordshire or Oxford. And then when hardly anybody puts up their talk in estates and in colleges, I say, welcome, migrants. That's what I say in Oxford. Um, it's the way I see it about trying to fix mobility, because in mainland Europe it's called mobility, not migration. Can you imagine introducing this inside the United Kingdom? So if you want to move from Newcastle to Oxford, we check some points and see if you're good enough. If you wanted to move from London to Liverpool, we just check whether the quota had been reached yet or not in a particular job you're going at. Why on earth would you do that within the United Kingdom? And if you wouldn't do that within the United Kingdom, why would you do it within this continent of opportunity where my children can get jobs across a whole wide range of countries. They can go and study bloody free at the moment, but somebody's thinking of taking that away from them. Why would you do it unless you were really scared of the immigrants? And why are you scared of the immigrants? What is it about them? I mean, my friend here, I don't think you were born. I wasn't born you know, here, yes. <laughs> and we compete. We work in the same industry. You know, not for one iota do I think. And, of course, our universities are absolutely filling up. Most new appointments at my university are from outside of England because we have to get people who, you know, have done enough that actually will rank highly. So we do take people from everywhere, far more than we take from England. I don't see the problem with that. Um, I do know that some people do... But I'm afraid I never have. Um, I do see a problem of being a place where the population is falling. I do see the problems that Glasgow had as it fell. I do see the problems that Liverpool had as it fell. And I can imagine what would happen if we leave and vote to leave on the second referendum to a country... In Okay. No, you uh, think I'm not you answering the point. You explained the point enough, so I think... Yeah. You know, How many people think I was answering the point? <laughs> many people in the downside. Okay, uh, thanks, Danny. We, we have to move on, and you can have a bit of more of a, a discussion if you want at the, the reception. I sense there's a, a, an issue which is, is bound to come up, which is about sort of ideas and identities, and whether you think people from Newcastle have a, a right to come to London more than people from Paris or, or, yeah. or Poland, for that uh, matter. Okay, let me move to the uh, bottom part of the, uh, the theatre, and I'll take a question Sorry, from the lady over here, over there, the glasses. Yes. No, no, sorry. Yeah. And then after that, the gentleman over there. I would like to ask, Walter Schäkel from the European Institute, I would like to ask a question about migration. I mean, you make it, you, you make it very much an identity point. But you may have seen that last week the FT had commissioned a, a study from your migration observatory at Oxford and asked how many European migrants could stay if they had to take these visa rules that, you know, you have to earn at least £35,000 a year. And 81% would have to leave. What this means is that most of these migrants are poorer. Uh, they do go to the poorer boroughs. 
they, there is a pressure on housing for the resident poorer ones. Uh, I think it is not quite so easy. And if it is, as you also have continuously said, the United, States, uh, the United Kingdom is not ready to put more resources in healthcare, into education, all that, then I'm afraid the, the distributive effects are such that, yes, those of us who earn in the top quintile don't have to worry, but those in the bottom four quintiles do have to worry. So in that sense, I do think it's not quite so easy to all put it down to a psychology of fear. Thanks. Um, uh, you made some uh, excellent jokes uh, at the expense of uh, UKIP and uh, the extreme right wing of the Tory party and their uh, rather facile obsessions. Um, but I wonder if you could focus on uh, the concerns of uh, more progressive people. Um, uh, in relation to the European Union. For example, um, the recent uh, and continuing uh, punishment of Greece uh, and the uh, um, apparent complete lack of solidarity uh, um, with Greece. Uh, and, for example, um, I forget the exact expression, but I think it's called something like the Financial Stability Pact, uh, which I think was part of the Maastricht Treaty. I stand to be corrected, which I seem to recall um, limits the amount of GDP that you can spend on um, uh, um, a public expenditure, essentially. And, uh, and finally, uh, uh, it occurs to me, uh, a company called Volkswagen, uh, which um, uh, is enormously powerful in the cor corridors of the EU because it's an enormously large company, uh, which the EU is uh, very which the EU are very interested in. And according to the lead story on the front page of the Financial Times some months ago now, anybody who was anybody who needed to know it in the EU was fully aware for many years of the scandal of Volkswagen trying to slowly but surely poison us all. And it was only revealed, of course, by the United States authorities. And I wonder what your comments on those are, especially if you've got any good jokes. Okay. <laughs> I'll try with the jokes. I think, I think we need more, we're going to need a lot of jokes as we head towards the actual date because the, the dog whistle stuff will, will come out. Um, 35,000 euros a year, was that the figure? Okay, 35,000 pounds. Um, that's not poor. The, the, the key thing is the 80% of people with incomes below that... Um, you know, your average income is 25,000, but they're young. The migrants are predominantly young. Compared to other young people, they are often better off. They're certainly better educated with more degrees. If we look at the migrant pattern into Britain as a whole, we look at our private schools, which have now become ethnically mixed. Um, we have rich migrants, extremely rich migrants. Just look at the Sunday Times Rich List and poor migrants, and as far as I can see, they're a little bit more diverse than the population who are not migrants, but migrants are not particularly poor or rich. They are just much better educated, not at our expense. Um, the idea that they can't fit in, you know, we choose to have a planning system and to kill off our social housing so we don't have enough houses. We choose to have attendancy agreements that the rest of Europe wouldn't allow. We, we create all these, uh, these problems ourselves. Um, but it is, don't think that migrants are coming predominantly into poor areas. For a start, the biggest influx is to London, which is one of the richest cities of this country. 
Migrants are not going to Barrow and Furness. They're not there. They're not going to the poorest parts of the country. You will not see them in places where there isn't something to do. Um, because why would you leave your home country and go somewhere where there isn't something to do? Uh, you've, you've got ve- many very good points. Uh, there is a huge amount which is wrong about Brussels. My problem is that I suspect for every example of something which is awful, such as treating Greece so very badly and bolstering the German economy at the same time, I suspect you can find a UK example, such as Privy Council regulation of a third of the world's tax havens, which actually causes more problems. My argument is that we're not Denmark, we're not Sweden. If we were sitting in Denmark or Sweden... I would find this quite difficult because you may sit there and say, look, we spent 250 years getting decent schools in Denmark and now TTIP's going to mean that we have to let anybody start their own private school in our country. Let's just leave. There are reasons why Switzerland and Norway have stayed out but still pay the fee that they have to pay. But these are countries of solidarity where people respect and like each other. We are not that kind of a country. We're a country in which I have to sit in meetings and listen to people argue about why we shouldn't pay the living wage, even though we could afford to pay it, because they're not worth it. I have to sit in meetings when people talk about what wonderful genetic potential they have, because they've been selected to the best university and they are naturally superior. That kind of thing is much less common, you know, in in the mainland. We, We are a strange country. There are terrible problems, and I do have a worry about My position is obviously remain, but I worry that this would actually hold Europe back by staying in. I have some sympathy for for my friends who say, go on, vote and leave, and then let's see what we can do and actually do with European solidarity. And then 20 years later, when the fantasy of becoming the richest country in the world doesn't quite pay off, we can go back on our knees and enter something which doesn't have these problems. But I... I'm not a betting person, and I've learned that you can't predict things that well. Uh, can I sneak in a, a follow-up question from, from the earlier point? Uh, w- w- uh, Danny, we know from uh, you know, many labor economists and economists that look at migration, they have said, you know, they've provided evidence that migration is not actually, um, you know, a, a drag into, into the economy and, you know, there's positive contributions. But there is a point to be made that, you know, wealthy migrants go to wealthy places and poor migrants go to poor places. So there is a, a kind of a, an expectation that there would be distributional consequences. Yeah. And, of course, you've done a lot of work on, on inequalities, uh, distributional issues. So do you think there is then a case uh, uh, to be made about then a more activist kind of whatever policy intervention or whatever yeah. to alleviate specific problems? Oh, th- this is a terrible thing. We are not planning for migration. So we have official government policy of we're going to build 100, 200,000 houses a year, which we don't do which is what you should do if you're growing in population, and a government policy saying we restrict migration tens of thousands, which we don't do. Um, and I have sympathy. I mean, the city I came back home to after being away for more than two decades, I come back to find every council estate but one gentrified. I come back to find I can hardly afford to buy a house because there's been so much immigration to it. I come back to find huge numbers of Chinese people living there, and there was nobody from China when I left. It's not the same city I grew up in. It's like London. Um, I can see why you might get angry, 
because your children cannot live in that city. They have to go, in this case, to Bister and Didcot or even further away. And if you have a child and declare yourself homeless, they, if you're lucky, we'll rehouse you in Coventry because that's the first place that Oxford City Council have. The solution is to build some flats and apartments within two miles of the city centre on the green fields that have been kept green since 1945 because the University of Oxford hated the car factory. We can house people by building houses and flats. We can educate people by spending money on schools and building schools. We can have a decent health service by simply trying to fund it at the European average level and taxing ourselves at the normal European level. We can learn things from this continent if we only go and look. And to be honest, you can pick almost any country in an arc from the top of Norway right down at least to the austerity countries, which we have most in common with now and learn ways of doing things that work better than, than we do them. It is not the immigrants that causes problems with a housing crisis or an education crisis or a health crisis. It's the opposite. Our school teachers in London and in Oxford are the immigrants, and they stay until they want children, and then they leave because they cannot afford a home to have children in. Our entire health service is only kept going because of the people who've come in, it, but we could reduce the... Immigration has been the most salient issue at every general election for the last six general elections apart from 2010, when the economy just beat it. Right? Quietly, the British public say immigration is the worst thing. What's happened is that they've been convinced that the things that they are really worried about are bad because of immigrants. This really suits people who don't want you to have a decent school, who don't want you to have decent housing. It suits them that you believe it's the immigrants rather than them. And we saw in the last few weeks of the mayoral campaign in London an attempt to do this again, and it failed in London. We're going to see it happen again in the last few weeks of the Brexit debate. It will fail in London But the question is, will it wash in parts of England in which there are hardly any immigrants, but you'll be able to convince people in the poorest parts of Sheffield and Liverpool and Manchester and Newcastle that somehow their estate is doing really badly, despite the fact that everybody's white and was born there because somebody spotted some Roma person in the middle of town. (laughs) And it sounds like a joke, but it would be laughable you know, the most pro-European voting place is the place with the greatest number of immigrants, which is London. And it's not because all these people from Europe are going to vote, because you're not allowed to vote. The English people are going to vote most of remain in Europe in those areas where they've experienced the greatest immigration. And you want to tell me this is actually about immigration? Okay. Another round of questions. The man over there. And then, yeah. sorry, the, the, no, the, the guy with the glass in the corner. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. When you um, get the mic. Thanks. Uh, thanks for the talk. It was great. Um, I just wanted to ask that I, I understand one of your general points was that um, it wasn't because of the EU that the UK has problems with health and education and equality. But on the flip side, 
could you guarantee that the EU will be the reason why we have we spend more on health, or could you guarantee that the EU will be the reason why university will be relatively cheaper in future for our kids, or that we'll become more equal as uh, as a society? Yeah, thanks. And then the gentleman a bit further. Hi. Um, I didn't get a chance to vote the first time, but if I recall um, correctly, it was sold that we were joining an economic community. And it's turned out that it was a political union. And I just wonder how many people perhaps feel misled and are then antagonistic against to what we've been sold into. Okay. Uh, The two questions are related. Things that currently work because of the EU is the free movement of labour, which you wouldn't have, the free right to study anywhere, and also, although Volkswagen have tricked the officials in collusion, air in London would be far, far worse if we weren't fined every time we exceed the EU limits. Um, The EU has done many pretty obvious things uh, that make the world a simpler and safer and better place. It's also the reason why we don't have the death penalty you can't be a member of the EU if you agree with the death penalty. So it doesn't matter what Parliament does over voting for it. I don't happen to think death penalty is a particularly wonderful thing. Um, But to answer your question, in the Treaty of Rome, ever closer union was specified. It's just that the English didn't read it, even though it was actually written in English. The politicians in 1975 didn't explain what the Treaty of Rome was, but why are none of our newspapers or the BBC did either? People were voting for something where there was a treaty that said this will change. If Europe does move towards more of the United States of Europe, then the ability to do things like charge £9,000 in one state may well be challenged. Uh, there are good reasons to challenge it. I'll just say this very quietly, assuming there's nobody from UKIP in the room. Uh, but at the moment... Anybody from Europe has a a right to come and study in an English university? They have to pay £9,000 a year. They're coming. They're not just coming, they're coming in greater numbers. If it wasn't for people coming from Europe, mainland Europe, last year, we would have had a drop in our university numbers and we would have had to sack some lecturers. Why are they coming? It's probably because we're just brilliant and we certainly do market ourselves. They're coming because they have a right to a student loan. And they only have to pay that loan back if they earn the average, over the average wage. Now, you come from Romania and go back to Romania and get a good job. You're never going to pay it. But, in fact, more people are coming from France to study in England than from Romania. Why are they coming from France to pay £9,000 here? Because they're not paying it, but they have a right to a student loan. And when they go back to Paris, they're supposed to write a letter to the Inland Revenue telling them where they are. So if we stay in Europe, the £9,000 a year is not viable if we stay in Europe. It will have to go. And that's one reason to stay there. Um, But please don't tell UKIP that all these students are coming for free. um, Because they're quite nice to teach, because it's pretty boring otherwise. (laughs) Okay, unfortunately the lectures recorded, so UKIP will (laughs) find out. (laughs) Uh, so I'll take the question from the gentleman there, and then we'll move to the upper. Thank you. 
Aye. So in short, <coughs> I suppose it's in the interest of the universities to keep the status quo at the moment, yeah. Um, the health, from the point of view of the health service, so, so the Swiss are spending twice as much as we are, and the Americans are spending how much? Twice as much, three times as much as we are. Yes. Right, and getting worse outcomes. Yes. Appalling outcomes. Yeah. And the reason why people are, uh, that death rate is so high, because they're murdering them in the hospitals. Is that a fantasy? <coughs> well, what happened to the, uh, what happened to the um, Marie Curie pathway? The pathway was closed down two years ago. 130,000 people a year were being killed, right? The professor who exposed this, it, the government actually decided that they were going to close that system down, but it still goes on. That's one of the reasons why the death rate is so high. And the reason why the health, the health is the health, the Swiss health worse than ours? No, it's far but better. How do you know that? How do well, you know the Swiss health is better than ours? There could be thousands of statisticians making it all up, or it, they could be better. How, you're, just, you're saying it's better, but what, in what way is it better? People live longer, they have lower rates of ill health, the infant mortality rate is about half. We count right. these things. Okay. We do check, but... All right, yeah. okay. All right. Well, the reason why the health is so bad in this country... Why is it so bad in this country? Because, as GlaxoSmithKline, the producer of the large, second largest producer in the world of drugs, said most of their drugs don't work yeah. on most people. That's why. Yeah. No, I do agree. There is an issue with pharmaceutical companies. Um, but who's going to sort that out? Because these are, these are international corporations. Will it be sorted out by something the size of the UK? Or could something the size of the EU say, we're not prepared to let you do this? <laughs> yes. Okay. A question from the very back by the lady there, and then at the top, Amanda. Um, hi, I'm from Dublin, and I work as a doctor here in London. And um, if thirty-five thousand pounds is the minimum income required to stay here, then I'd definitely be part of that eighty percent that's going to get booted out. And honestly, before this evening, I've never considered myself as poor, so I find that quite interesting. Um, Thanks, first of all, to Professor Doyling for an enthralling talk this evening. And my question is, um, I remember last year a very interesting point that was raised in the pre-election debates, and they'd mentioned that there are actually more British immigrants living in other EU countries than there are EU immigrants living within the UK. And I wondered what you thought the effect of, if, for example, the um, UK were to, in the end, leave the EU, what effect might that have on the asymmetry there? Thank you. Okay. And question? I think uh, you are over emphasizing. A, a, a bit louder, if you don't mind. I think you are over um, emphasizing the importance of EU students in the UK. Um, so, so um, EU students in the UK they pay the same rates as British students. Uh, EU students that study in Scotland. Uh, at the undergraduate level, they pay, um, I mean, they actually study for free. Um, in, um, students from outside the EU uh, pay about uh, double what British students pay. And um, in, um, students from outside the EU at PhD level pay quadruple what um, British students pay. Um, also, um, because of this unrestricted uh, immigration from the EU, um, the 
the government is uh, forced to um, make up for it by um, cutting back on uh, international students. Uh, and um, so, uh, are you aware that, for example, uh, American and Australian PhD students have been deported from this country? Okay. Um, let's do yours first. I think a few years ago there were, there were more people actually living outside of the country who were born in it than people living in, born elsewhere. Um, that may have just tipped. Or as I say, it, we don't know if they're still alive. You know, so it, it's quite hard to actually count our expats because so many of them are elderly. I'm amazed that you don't have people in Spain and in other parts of Europe saying this uncontrolled migration where we cannot stop these slightly belligerent people who like drinking quite a lot coming and hanging around. I'm not I'm being stereotyped. You know, coming and using our social services, using our health services, not working at all, claiming benefits. Not, it's amazing that you don't hear this argument about one of the largest immigrant groups in Europe, which is the British, who've chosen to go down to the Med and turn themselves pink. Um, it's, it's amazing. But I, I try not to try to guess too much. I've, but I have said there's a real problem trying to house hundreds and hundreds of thousands of elderly people. There isn't a problem getting a young doctor from Dublin working in a hospital. You know, it's, it isn't rocket science to, to work it out. The figures are in the UCAS end of cycle report, and they're very recent. So the report was only just released around about Christmas and hasn't been publicised. It's a doubling in the last year compared to the year before from mainland uh, Europe. I'm not aware about what's happened to uh, PhD students. I guess these are Commonwealth students from the Commonwealth Fund from Australia. Uh, and I've got no idea about the US because they don't obviously qualify for the Commonwealth Fund. Yeah. Uh, we're running out of time. I will just take one last uh, very persistent question from yes. here. <laughs> uh, sorry, just two points quickly. Um, with the expats, I mean, you're talking about um, those using the healthcare system abroad, but I mean, are they not net, uh, sorry, net contributors with the amount of wealth they take with them, a lot of um, uh, pensions and things like that? Um, and just secondly, with immigration, um, you seem to be talking like po about population growth is, is always a good thing. I'm not saying it's you know, a bad thing, but net migration, 330,000, uh, with the living wage goes up, could it be half a million? So what's like a stable number? Okay. Okay. Um, very good point. Uh, this, I'm for the free movement of pensioners. And if, <laughs> uh, you know, if, if we slowly migrate south... Yeah, to the Mediterranean as, as a species, I, I think it's, it's fine. I would like the right to be able to do that myself in my old age, maybe. Um, most pensioners are not that wealthy, including most of the people who've moved. Um, they can just about afford it, because, of course, the housing's cheaper than the housing here. The pensions funds are still from here, so the money's coming from, going from here to them, but then it's being spent locally. But they're not working and they are getting access to the health service. I think the real test of the economic value is if we were to leave, would they stay somehow because they had the wealth that allowed them to do it? 
and I suspect they would come back. We already saw people came back. When we reduced the warm winter payments, do you remember those? If it's very cold, you get more money if you're a pensioner. But we took it away from people living in near the Mediterranean, which sounds sensible, but that had the effect of people who were just managing to get by, you know, in Malta, take away that tiny bit of money, and they couldn't do it anymore, and they came back to Britain. Now... And that means that you have to look after them in the hospital in Britain, whereas if we just carried on paying that tiny amount of money, it would have helped. How many is too many? The last time we managed to reproduce ourselves at a steady rate was something like 1968, when I was born. I think that's the last time we had about 2.05 children per couple. It collapsed in the 1970s. It's never got back up. We have a declining population. Uh, not declining as fast. This is of the homegrown population. We haven't had two children per couple since the 1960s. The whole of Europe, nowhere in Europe has had two children per couple. In Barcelona, it is one on average, which means Barcelona would halve in size at the moment. If we don't have people coming in, we end up with far, far fewer young people for an elderly population who are going to need to be looked after. It would be really interesting if we had somewhere in Europe which actually was producing two children per, per couple. Um, if you're young, there are less of you. Peak baby in the world was 1990. We're now at peak 25-year-old. But this happened much earlier in Europe. The European tragedy, just to say, end on why everything isn't good on Europe, needs to be sorted out, is we've never had fewer young Europeans. We've never had fewer babies. We've never educated them better. We've never sent so many to university, getting so many degrees across the entire continent. And we've never had so many people under 25 unemployed in Europe. You know, Europe is not a panacea. It has problems. But we have much bigger problems than the problems in most of the mainland, of which our biggest problem is we don't even realise that we do. So we think this place is much better than those countries, despite the fact that our medium income is lower than in France and Germany. Everybody in France could stop working on a Friday and they'd still be better off than us. And that is before you factor in the cost of getting a house. But we don't know this. We don't know the continent that we're living on because we've looked west to the United States and we've learned so very little since we joined in the 1970s, and it's about time we began to learn a bit more about the place that we're part of. And if we do vote to remain, I think there should be a campaign to actually get people to go and visit the place that they have chosen for a generation to stay in. Um, rather than it being a damp squid, now's the time to get to know the continent that you have chosen to be a part of. And that then isn't out of fear. That's out of some idea of hope and preferably go by train rather than by cheap air travel. Uh, thank you very much. Very good idea. Before we uh, all uh, sort of appreciation to, to Danny Dolling for the very interesting presentation and discussion, I have to make some announcements. If you like this event, there's another one coming next year, the 8th uh, Lex Anya Lexus sometime in, in May 2017. Uh, but in the meantime, the European Institute has many, many events, uh, like, for example, uh, a breakfast with Gordon Brown tomorrow. If you don't have a ticket uh, I'm afraid you cannot uh, come. Uh, on the 23rd uh, of, of May, we have a, a lecture 
by Jonathan Hill uh, on the single EU capital market, uh, a, dis a discussion about Europe's troubled future by G Giles Merritt on the 26th of May. More events on June. Again, Gordon Brown revisiting uh, LSE on the 7th of, of June. So if you want to attend any of these events, please visit uh, the uh, website of the European Institute uh, or the LSE events page, and you will find more. Thank you all for your participation and your questions, and let's join, join me in thanking Danny Dolling for his presentation.